Glad to have you listening to the show today. Welcome back. If you've been listening a while, you've probably heard the other episodes that we've done in our disability education series. Well, this episode is another installment of that. Today, we are going to discuss Down syndrome. You're listening to the Not Just a Pony Ride podcast, the podcast exclusive for the equine assisted services community. Now, in this episode, I'm going to cover a lot of symptoms and other medical complications that those with Down syndrome can have. But of course, we recognize that all diagnoses are sort of a spectrum, right? So anyone with Down syndrome can present with several of these symptoms, or they can present with very few. There's a wide range of the presentation and the ability levels within this diagnosis. So just because I talk about one symptom doesn't mean that everyone who has Down syndrome will experience that. It's just something to stay aware of for our participants. Of course, my objective with these episodes is to bring awareness um, to some of these precautions and contraindications that we all need to be tuned into as EAS professionals. So take the bits and pieces of information as you will and enjoy. As for today, we are going to learn about Down syndrome. So some stats and symptoms and what to look for um, as precautions and contraindications when our participants with Down syndrome are interacting with our beautiful equine partners. Um, So that applies to either on the ground or in the saddle, either one. So um, first, let's lay out some language. We always use person first language. So we always want to say a person with Down syndrome, not a Down syndrome person. So you see how the person always comes first, not the diagnosis, because we are all people first and not defined by our diagnoses or other things like that. So second, um, specific to Down syndrome is we want to avoid saying Downs. So like that child has Downs um, or, or that type of thing, because really the apostrophe S is like possession. I'm not really great with English, (laughs) like terms, you know, grammar, but um, that's just not accurate for us. And it just has a tendency to skew a little more on that negative side, like kind of like that person first thing that we were talking about. So I just wanted to kind of lay out that language first. So when did this diagnosis arrive on the scene? Well, um, a fella named Dr. John Langdon Down, um, is whom the syndrome is named after, published the first description of Down syndrome that is known, and that was in 1866. So it's been around a while. Um, And Dr. Down didn't actually have Down syndrome. He was just really interested in the condition. Um, I was doing a little research on this, and I thought it was just very interesting. He um, had met someone with the condition and just became very interested in it, and so did a lot of research, and, and now we have Down syndrome. So today the CDC reports that about one in every 772 babies in the United States is born with Down syndrome. So that makes Down syndrome the most commonly diagnosed chromosomal condition that we have today. Um, Down syndrome is purely genetic, so that chromosomal um, piece is the genetic portion. And the cause... um, it's, it's just interesting. It's, it's genetic. So the increasing maternal age of the mother is increased to a chance of child a child having Down syndrome. For example, the um, statistic that I read from 2022, the chances are one in 1,600 of having a baby with Down syndrome, 
Whereas at 45, it's one in 50. So it increases quite a bit. Um, and that's really kind of one of the only things that we know is for sure linked to Down syndrome. The rest is very genetic. So chromosomal analysis identifies, um, can identify parents who are at risk of having children with Down syndrome. And that's also how it's diagnosed is by the chromosomal analysis. So what exactly happens to those chromosomes? So a little bit of background. Typically, the nucleus of each cell contains 23 pairs of chromosomes. So in a typically developing person, um, they have 23 pairs. And half of those pairs are from the mom and half of the, the pair is from the dad. So Down syndrome occurs when the, the person has a full or partial extra copy of that chromosome 21. So that's why sometimes you hear trisomy 21 because um, that is a type of Down syndrome related to that 21st chromosome. So there are actually three types, quote unquote, um, which a lot of people don't know, but about 95% is that extra copy of the chromosome, which is the trisomy 21. And the other two types are um, also complications with the 21st, but they're a little bit different and have some nuances of their own. Um, so we're just going to focus primarily on that trisomy 21, which is the majority um, of people who have Down syndrome. Um, that chromosomal abnormality is actually what causes the distinct physical features of Down syndrome. And then, of course, the associated difficulties um, that they experience uh, symptoms wise. So this diagnosis is, is typically given prenatally or at birth, um, and it's typically first suspected because of those physical features. Um, and then, like I said, confirmed with the chromosomal study. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about different complications that they might experience. Um, MRI imaging of the brain actually reveals a smaller overall brain volume. So some of those portions of the brain are actually a little bit smaller in comparison to someone who is typically developing or has, has, um, all those typical 23 pairs of chromosomes. Um, and that smaller brain volume is likely what leads to that difficulty in learning and long-term memory, speech, and some of those other kind of cognitive disabilities that we see. Um, and the chromosomal abnormality really, I mean, if you think about it, chromosomes are, I mean, that's those are the building blocks of how we build our entire body is, is those chromosomes. So um, it's it's not surprising that if you have an abnormality in that chromosome, you're going to have a lot of different complications in many of your body systems. We're going to go through a few of them today, not all of them, but I just think it's important to understand some of these underlying things about the body systems because when we start to talk about how we teach those with Down syndrome, um, it's you know how we how we consider precautions and contraindications, it's really good to have a background and a foundation for where we can base those modifications or base those, those policies and procedures that we have, right? So we'll get into just a few of these here. So um, a big one is heart defects. Those are really common for those who have Down syndrome. Actually about 44%, almost half, require some kind of medical intervention, excuse me, intervention to repair a heart defect. Visual impairments are also really common. About 30 to 60% have some type of difficulty, at least with their acuity. So they're like accuracy of their vision. Um, 
There's also a few other things related to vision, which um, can be related also to their muscles. So those with Down syndrome tend to have a lower muscle tone overall. And just like the muscles in our arms and legs, the muscles of our eyes can also be impacted. So we might see things like lazy eye, um, those, those types of things drift of the eyes because those muscles just aren't quite as strong. And so we see some visual impairments related to that as well. Hearing loss is also pretty common. About two thirds of children with Down syndrome have some kind of hearing loss and it can be either conductive, meaning like the middle ear, um, the conduction part of the sound is something is, is not working there, or it can be sensoroneural as well, which is like the cochlea and the auditory nerve and the things that are more, um, more inner and more brain-based, that can also be a cause of hearing loss. But we know that that's um, more common. And then once, if that hearing loss is present, you'll also see a correlation to speech. So hearing and speech are obviously very closely related. And a lot of times we'll see um, like our participants that have Down syndrome that might get a cochlear implant or um, something to help, a hearing device to help, then their speech takes off because then they can hear their voice, they can hear others' voice, um, and that speech will start to catch up as well. Um, so it's kind of interesting. Children with Down syndrome um, and adults with Down syndrome are at a great risk for becoming overweight, um, and that's due to a lower resting metabolic rate and propensity for hypothyroidism. So those hormones that control our metabolic rate are a little bit different in those who have Down syndrome, and um, those uh, with the diagnosis also tend to be shorter. So on average, about five foot is about um, you know, average height for them. And that makes weight gain a little more problematic, right? Because of that shorter stature. Now, when we talk about mounting those participants on horses, that's something that we really have to consider is that if weight is a little bit higher, because we might have to have a short stirrup, but a large seat size, right? To, to accommodate. So that can make sometimes saddle fitting our participants with Down syndrome a little more difficult, but um, there's always lots of options that we can do as far as um, adapting tack or adding little dudes. We don't know what little dudes are. Those are super handy little um, kind of ad adaptations for Western stirrups, um, things like that that we can do. But something to keep in mind when it comes to fitting our horses or participants onto our horses. Adults with Down syndrome experience accelerated aging, which I think is important to think about. That just means that they experience like the conditions that are most common to typically aging adults, they're going to experience much earlier in their life. And it's been researched that by around 45 years of age, they will have characteristic criteria of Alzheimer's disease. And that's just due to the increased concentration of those brain amyloid plaques that are a known cause of Alzheimer's. Um, it's interesting that clinical signs of that dementia aren't always present right away, but um, the research shows that brain function does start to deteriorate pretty significantly by the age of 65. Um, so we do have a little bit shorter life expectancy just due to that accelerated aging, and that is all part of that, that process of that 21st chromosome that, that plays a role in aging and um, how our body um, continues to develop. Um, those with Down syndrome are more prone to orthopedic problems, 
And that is likely due to laxed joints and ligaments. Just overall, they have more mobility in their joints and less strength in their muscles. So those two things together can cause some orthopedic problems. Um, A few that are more common are having very flat feet, so very flat arches, Um, and then the propensity to develop arthritis. Again, kind of that early aging, right? Um, But because those joints are so relaxed, they just get more wear and tear in those joints and can develop some pain um, at more of an early age. One of the most controversial problems, I think, in EAS, um, one that we really should pay a lot of attention to, and it affects about 15% of those with Down syndrome, so not everybody, is atlantoaxial instability. I'm going to say AAI going forward because that um, that is a mouthful. But basically, AAI impacts the atlas and the axis of the neck. Okay, so those are the very top two vertebra of the spine. And that joint really allows for the greatest degree of motion in our neck. It allows our head to nod, like flex and extend up and down, and then also rotate from side to side. So we have a lot of mobility in that specific joint of our neck. And because of those things I talked about earlier, like the decreased joint or decreased strength and increased joint laxity and mobility that comes with Down syndrome, that joint can have a tendency to have too much movement or even sublux, like get out of position and just kind of cause cause some problems there, right? So if that happens, if a subluxation happens, it can actually pinch the spinal cord right there in the middle of those vertebra, and that will cause symptoms. So it's pretty rare. About 2% of those that have AAI actually develop symptoms of that like impingement of the spinal cord, if that makes sense. So um, not everybody has AAI, and not everybody with AAI has symptoms or like impingement, okay? So it's kind of a hierarchy of things. But If the spinal cord is pinched at that level, you can see a variety of things. Um, Positive symptoms could be like fatiguing very easy, difficulties with walking or coordination, neck pain, limited neck mobility, even like change in hand function, like numbness, tingling um, in the arms or legs, a new onset of urinary retention or incontinence. That can be a sign too. And um, this is just a big point of contention for EAS because if the person has those symptoms, that means the nerve is being pressed on by the bones. That that just does not sound good, right? So if there were any sudden movements like jolting, jerking, or God forbid, even a fall from an equine, it really could be detrimental. I mean, that, that spinal cord is already... Um, vulnerable, right? Because it's already being a little bit pinched. So if, you know, something like that happens, it, it it's detrimental. It could be paralysis or even death um, if the spinal cord were be to complete, be completely injured. So that's why we take it so, so seriously. Um, and at Hetra, we, we have a lot of policies and procedures around AAI. So we request that participants that have a diagnosis of Down syndrome be released from their physicians of not having AAI annually. That's right. So every year we want to double check with their doctor, with their treating physician, that there are no signs or symptoms of having AAI. Um, If they do have current symptoms like the numbness, excuse me, numbness or tingling or neck pain or anything like that, 
we just, we make the choice not to ride them. Um, it's as simple as that because that liability is just too great. We can be as safe as we possibly can, but at the end of the day, sometimes horses are horses and we have to protect our participants at the you know level of comfort that we have for that liability, right? I am going to provide that wording in that paperwork that we use for our friends at Patreon um, to download or use for your own center if you'd like it. So if you want to join to get that perk, I'm going to put the link in the show notes. Um, you can join our club at Patreon. They get lots of perks. So anyway, that was a lot of information um, about kind of the symptomology and, and what those with Down syndromes might, excuse me, Down syndrome might experience. Um, so let's get more to the meat and potatoes of why you're probably listening to this, which is strategies of how to help our friends um, with Down syndrome in the arena, right? This podcast is sponsored in part by Wooden Horse Corporation and the Equisizer. The Equisizer, a handcrafted, non-motorized mechanical horse, is currently being used by hundreds of equine assisted services programs worldwide. The Equisizer requires no electricity, tools, or maintenance and can be used anywhere, indoors or out, for evaluations, warm-ups, stretching before lessons, mounting and dismounting practice, emergency procedures, or volunteer training. The Equisizer can also aid in reducing fear and building confidence for both students, clients, and volunteers. It can easily carry the weight of two adults, offering the option to ride tandemly for those riders who may need more support. To learn more about the Equisizer for your equine-assisted activities, visit Equisizer.com. That's E-Q-U-I-C-I-Z-E-R.com. So my favorite part is that, first and foremost, research shows that multi-sensory learning, quote-unquote, um, which is, you know, engaging all of our different senses in learning is super effective for those with Down syndrome, and it helps them retain information better and learn quicker. Um, that's super handy for us in EAS because what we're doing in the arena with our horses is so is just the most multi-sensory thing you could possibly do. Whether you're on the ground or in the saddle, um, that's exactly what we're doing. So we love that. We're already starting this off on the right foot. Um, we know we talked a little bit before about how speech and language development can be a bigger challenge. So first I want to start with simple, clear directions, um, breaking those tasks into smaller steps and repeating yourself as often as you need to. As far as giving directions go, visual aids are so helpful with speech and language breakdown. Um, visual aids make the information available for as long as the person needs it. So if you have a visual schedule or a visual timer, you know, let's let's take a visual timer, for example. If you have a participant that frequently asks how much time is left in the lesson, you know, instead of having to provide that information every, you know, five minutes or whatever it is, a visual timer, a timer that has, you know, maybe a red line that goes around and, and gets progressively smaller as the lesson goes on, something like that, or even a number countdown makes that information available to that participant whenever they want it. You can just direct them to the timer, direct them to, you know, that clock or whatever it is, um, and they can self-help themselves with that information, right? Um, same thing with like visual schedules or even using like a picture of a pattern. So maybe you're doing a three-step pattern and it's, you know, weave the cones, go around the barrel, stop at the stop sign, Great. That that three-step pattern might be a lot of verbal information for someone with Down syndrome to take in and remember because remember that memory storing and that is 
can be a little bit more difficult. So draw them a picture, get a small little whiteboard and draw, draw it on there, draw the cones, draw the barrel and, and the stop sign so that if they, you know, get halfway through those cones and they're like, shoot, what was the next part of the pattern? Their sidewalker or, or whoever, or you can have that picture available and they can check it and say, oh yes, I remember that. And they can head on to their next, you know, part of their pattern. Just giving lots of visual information can really be helpful. Um, along those same lines, like I said, that processing time is going to be different for everybody. So especially when asked to recall skills that you're committing to memory, for example, you know, maybe last week you worked on the sitting trot and you were giving specific cues for that. They might come to their session this week and not quite be able to remember that um, just because of that commitment to memory. So every week, um, if you work on those skills, just use that repetition and use consistency in the way you are teaching it. So if you're you're using a specific set of language, um, like posting, you know, rise and fall with the leg on the wall. You know, if you use that phrase, use that every week. And then eventually that, you know, will start to get more ingrained the longer that they hear it and the more consistent you are with teaching that. So just be aware of that, you know, cognitive processing speed and, and show some grace with that. Consistency is just, is key. I mean, obviously we want to teach our participants in a way that's not chaotic, right? But with our participants who have any kind of intellectual or social emotional disability or diagnosis, the more consistency we have in our lessons, the better, right? So this is one of the top key things I give to our instructors in training that are struggling with, um, honestly, a lot of different behaviors. So doing your warmups the same or starting the class in the same way or using similar verbiage when you're teaching, all of that is going to create more just consistency. Participants know what to expect. They can learn that and it becomes much easier. You don't have to recreate the wheel or be redirecting participants every single time you start your lesson, right? Now we work in a very dynamic environment. So horses are their own being, they're their own person, right? If you will, they can make their own decisions. And those decisions aren't 100% of the time always in our plan. So in other words, stuff happens and we have to be prepared for it. You know, we can't force our horses to be the exact same horse every single week. But what we can do is be consistent in the way that we handle it, right? So maybe even something as simple as helping to explain exactly that, that horses have their own brains and they can think and sometimes they do funny things like, you know, oh, that was silly. George decided to go left instead of right you know, what a deal. Um, just kind of giving our participants some drawing attention to it and not, um, being rigid in that, in that, that kind of stuff can't happen. Right. Even giving your horse leaders or sidewalkers specific instructions on how to handle those things can be really helpful. We don't have to explain our participants, you know, medical record and, and go against HIPAA and, you know, tell them all these personal details um, for them to be helpful. You can just say, hey, if something happens like that, this is what we're going to say, or this is how we're going to handle it. And just that consistency in that can help build um, that trust when things change, because sometimes that can be hard and scary. 
Another tool for our success is our good friend, positive reinforcement. So this is another tool that I give all of our instructors in training. Honestly, the the way to stay ahead of the eight ball when it comes to behaviors is just to give positive behavior, lots of attention and lots of recognition and just be super specific. So we sometimes get in the habit of saying, good job, great work, you know, saying things like that, which are obviously still positive and still good things to say, but I'm going to push you one step further to be specific. I know that every, at least path international CTRI out there is loving them some specific praise, right? So it's no different with our participants for Down syndrome. I just want you to beef it up. So something like, Sarah, I saw how you pulled back on your reins so gently. Your horse Smokey loves how you did that. Look how happy he is, you know, something like that. So adding some kind of social reinforcement, like, like your horse loves that. Smokey loves that. He's happy. Look at him, you know, and um, really drawing attention to how she pulled back gently on the reins. That's going to work about a thousand times better than saying, Sarah, don't pull so hard on your reins. Okay even though that's going to happen from time to time, right? And we're going to have to redirect that in a different way. But if you can catch Sarah in, you know, something good, if you can really try and and train your eye to see all of the good things rather than see everything that goes wrong, that's going to help you, I promise, about a thousand times more than trying to recur, you know, redirect problems. Um the same thing goes with like trying to find out what's motivating to them. So Maybe it's things like getting to choose the pattern, you know, next in the class or being the first one to get to go through the pattern or the first one to trot. Um, Even something like getting to pet the cats after the session, right? Anything that you can find to motivate them is helpful because then you can start to implement some first then language. So first we're going to do two point, then we're going to trot or first we have to work, you know, in our lesson and then we get to go pet the cats or whatever it is, you know, something like that to help redirect behavior. But then you're redirecting it to something that's motivating and that's preferred. And that kind of first then type of language is typically um, a little bit easier for our participants to digest than something that's long drawn out and, um, you know, complicated. So. Um, As we kind of wrap up, lastly, I just, I want to mention something that I think we should all strive to do better with as instructors. And honestly, that's regardless of diagnosis um, for our participants. And that is inclusion and more global lesson planning. I know lesson plans can be can feel like a time suck sometimes, I think. And that's just me being honest, you know? We have so much stuff going on as EAS professionals. I mean, heck, we may be be going into sessions straight off of doing all the stalls for the day or, you know, planning all the volunteer schedules for the day or whatever, but really sitting down and building lesson plans um, is something that is always gonna help you facilitate success. And beyond that, Let's talk about building lesson plans that really highlight our participants' strengths. Like just thinking about 
what what do all of my participants do well? I read a great article from the Down Syndrome Resources Foundation, and it really kind of shifted my thinking on this. Regardless of if your participant has a disability or not, everyone has a strength. Everyone can do something. So when I'm thinking about planning my lesson, I'm thinking about what can everybody do? Okay, great. Now, how can I add complexity to that? You know, if someone is a little bit higher than somebody else or something like that. That is so much easier than starting with the most complex version of the lesson. Like, uh, we're going to post the trot in a four-step pattern or something, right? Like the most complex version of a lesson for that particular set of participants. And then trying to go backwards and simplify things, you know, after the fact, like when you're already in the lesson trying to figure that out, right? So if we just plan our lessons to be more inclusive of those participant strengths, we have to do less modifying and less adaptations just in general. And this honestly is going to avoid that dreaded situation of teaching a class of three individual lessons instead of one well-thought-out, cohesive class to three participants. And that's exactly what we want. So many times with our instructors in training, I see that that individual lesson thing happening, right? Where it's like, okay, well, today we're going to do the posting trot, but Jimmy, you're not posting yet, so you're going to do seated trot. And John, you're not trotting yet, so you're going to walk, you know, this or whatever, you know. So obviously we want to be able to adapt and make changes based on what we need to. But if we start that lesson with our strengths, you know, everybody can do this and then start to add some of those more complex things. It's just, it's a whole lot easier. Um, it just avoids that kind of thinking, like I have to do so much extra work for that, you know, one kid who can't do this. Just think, who are your kids? What are their strengths? What do they like? What do they need? And do that first. And then plan to address, you know, things that change or things that you need to, to add complexity. And I think a lot of that comes down to um, what helps with this is making sure our lessons are paired very well. You don't want to have someone who's independent at the canner and someone who is, you know, has a leader hooked on at the walk in the same lesson. We would never do that as instructors, right? Because that's not safe and that's not diligent um, and that's not helpful for our participants. They're not learning the most they can in a lesson like that. So I would challenge you to spend some time this week looking at your lesson plans and playing to your participants' strengths and then trying to create that cohesive lesson um, that you know is well-matched, lessons that are well-matched for everybody. I mean, after all, inclusion, it's not really about just putting participants of all ability levels together in a class, right? We can do that. We can put participants of different diagnoses and different levels of ability all together. That's fine. But what it's really about is facilitating like an authentic space where people feel like they belong and they, they don't feel like they're different. They feel like they can be themselves and they're all just in this lesson together, having the same experience and really enjoying it. Right. I mean, I think that's one of the most amazing things about equine assisted services and why we are what sets us apart so differently is because whether you're on the ground or in the saddle, participants come to us because they feel those things, right? They feel like they belong. They don't feel like the horse judges them. They feel like they can be, um, you know, be themselves. And it just, 
I don't know, something as simple as a well thought out lesson plan, you know, that that plays to participant strengths can make all the difference in the way that programming changes lives. Kind of corny, but that's my soapbox for today. So <laughs> I hope you all have a great day. That's kind of the end of our episode for today. But thanks for listening to another installment of this disability series. It's something I'm really passionate about and something we're going to continue to do. So I'll link the other episodes that we've done in the show notes below that highlight those different disabilities. And I would honestly, I'd be honored if you give me some feedback um, or ask any questions that you have about your participants at home. Um, Of course, not being too specific because we want to um, be mindful of HIPAA, but you can always go over to our Facebook page or our Instagram and DM me or shout them out, um, whatever you like, and, and let me know what you think or if you have any questions. So Thanks for stopping by the show today and we'll see you guys next time. Side note, if you are kind of a nerd like me and want to get any of the resources from the information I talked about today, like the statistics and all of those things, I'm going to link all the research articles and my resources in the show notes below. Thanks again for listening. That's all for today. But until the next episode launches, scroll down to the show notes and click on the link to get plugged in with us on Facebook, Instagram, or our exclusive educational club at Patreon. This podcast is presented by Hetra University, the educational arm of Heartland Equine Therapeutic Writing Academy in Gretna, Nebraska. Hetra University's mission is to provide high quality educational offerings to the EAS community. Check out all the Hetra University has to offer at www.hetrauniversity.org.